Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hi, today I'm talking to the effervescent and irrepressible Kevin Lawrence. He's starting his, his week in Vancouver and I'm just wrapping up Monday in Wiltshire. He has spent the last 25 years coaching high-performing teams, high-performing executives, and he's distilled what he's learned, much of it counterintuitive in his book, Your Oxygen Mask First, where he identifies the seven things that high achievers need to know in order to survive and thrive. The first thing he says is you have to ditch work-life balance. High achievers will not have a balanced life. And then we get on to talk about how to spot changes in mental health, how to build resilience, how to invest in your sweet spots. Uh, We have a great conversation. We talk a lot about recruitment and using the work of Jim Collins and Brad Smart to drive businesses where over 90% of the people in the firm are A players. And he talks a bit about how to give tough feedback. I really enjoyed my conversation today with Kevin, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it. Cheers. Hey, it's Kevin Lawrence here. I'm here in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and uh, I'm the author of a book called Your Oxygen Mask First, which is designed for high-performing CEOs and leaders that want to continue to grow and get better as their business becomes more complicated and challenging, and also to have a great life at the same time. So it's about what you got to do to manage and master yourself on this great journey we call building a business. Um, So looking forward to chatting with you today. Thank you, Kevin. What inspired you to to put the book together? You know, I spent the last, getting getting close to 25 years, which is, man, that's dating me, but close to 25 years as a coach to high-performing CEOs and leaders. And along the way, I've just had the great gift of learning so much from these amazing people I've had the, the opportunity to work with. And within that, there's a lot of secrets or the, a lot of behind the scene things that I learned along the way that were very different than I expected. And what I wanted to do is to be able to share that with people. This is what it really takes to build a great company and to build yourself into the amazing leader that's required to do it. So it's my insights and conversations I have all the time with CEOs and leaders. And I just didn't see other people out there talking about it a lot. So I wanted to kind of put my take on what I've learned from the leaders that I've worked with. You also do a workbook. Yep. That's a separate thing. Basically, there's a lot of questions in the book. The book is designed to get you to think and to process stuff you already know. I mean, we're already brilliant in our own ways, but we need the right questions to get in there and penetrate our mind or or the right perspectives to have the right views on things. So uh, the workbook is, is a place for you just to write and do the exercises. We, we also do an executive development program. I've got another session this afternoon where we take the principles in a book and other really good books, great books actually, 
and do an executive development program. It's used in that program as well, again, for people to do the thinking and processing. There's something about pen to paper or taking the thoughts out of your head and getting them down on a, a format in front of you to help you to be able to get more clarity. So that's why we put that piece together. What are some of those little sort of behind the scenes secrets that were surprising to you? Probably the, the biggest one. I mean, there's a bunch of things that are counterintuitive and people have to learn to think at higher frequencies as they get larger. But one of the bigger ones is the amount of mental health explosions that people have. And what I've seen from the highest performers that I work with happens to all, but it seems to be more prevalent in the highest performers is that they go through really weird spaces. I call it, you know, things get weird because it's a nicer way to look at it, but things get weird, seriously weird inside their brains on a fairly regular basis. It's part of the game and the sharpest, strongest, most successful I work with have those, those identical challenges along the way. That was shocking to me. I thought mental health problems happened to weak people, but it actually happens to the strongest in ways that would blow your mind. They just don't talk about it because it's not good for the brand or the marketing, but it happens a lot. I've had to become an expert in that stuff. Is it sort of a lack of self-belief? Is that sort of, is there something about drive and fragility that are sort of opposite sides of the same coin, do you think? Or? Uh, no, it's just too much stress. They melt their brain down. It's like if you take your car and you run it at full speed for a long period of time, and if it's a, a petrol-powered car and you no longer had water in the system to cool the engine off, it'll cease because it'll get too hot and the metal will bind. And that's what happens to the brains is they run too hot for too long and don't get the right cooling off. And then sometimes there'll be a big event that happens there's a, there's a saying, you know, all of us are one or two life events away from a mental health issue. So when you run that hard, that hot, it just takes a couple little things and you're in the mental ditch. Yeah. So what, when you're coaching these guys, what, what are you looking out for? They have no idea that they're accelerating towards the cliff. What are you looking out for? You know, it's simple things for, for them canceling and bailing out of anything, social things, avoiding meetings. I'm looking for signs of alcohol or addiction getting stronger. Uh, looking for signs of sleep changing, like you know, sleep getting disrupted or them sleeping too much or not enough. Um, signs of stress, anxiety, signs of them getting sick. Signs of them getting rude or unpleasant to work with. All these things, there's a thing called the mental health continuum. And it's almost a paint-by-number thing to, to sort of a self-assess or assess where others are at. You start to see changes in them where they're starting to mentally melt down. And so you just you, you, you listen for it. And I train all my clients on this so they can self-assess and they can say, hey, I think I might be getting into the orange zone. Oh, I might be in the red zone. It's actually quite obvious if you learn to look and listen for it. You just need to be aware of it. And uh, in the past, I wasn't. So I, I only learned about it when they actually finally cook themselves. And is this, is mental health, is that something that you've struggled with at all? I have. I have burnt quite a bit I, because I'm driven so hard. And, you know, my mother the other day says, you know, Kevin, remember your whole life, you've learned the hard way, right? You push it to the limit or you drive for that cliff. And once you're in the air driving off the cliff, you go, oh, maybe that was a bad idea. <laughs> and I've done it a lot of times. You know, I burnt myself out the first time seriously at 24 and I burnt myself out so good 
It took me about two years to recover. You know, I was a high performing sales rep. I was involved in the community and fundraiser. Like I, I was involved in everything and I was going so hard and loving it. I was having the time of my life. Yeah. So that recovery took about two years. Now I burn myself out quite regularly. Realistically, every 18 to 24 months, I cook myself seriously. Um, sometimes it goes 30, 30 months, but I can recover in a couple months now. I could recover quite easily because I've mastered it and I understand it now. So I'm pretty good at messing myself up sometimes. And so what do you, I was going to say, what do you do in that sort of three month recovery period when you realize you've. It's actually, it's a chapter in my book. One of the tools we teach in the book is called resilience rituals. What do you do for your body, for your mind and for your spirit? And how do you continue? And even if you do those things, you still can get in trouble sometimes if too much stress comes along. And we, you know, that's a factor. We teach people these resilience rituals and if they have them to hold on to them and stop them, what happens to most people is they stop doing the things they do to take care of themselves. It's like they stop brushing their teeth and they wonder why they get cavities. You know, we stop taking care of ourselves, and we wonder why we start to melt down or that we can't handle the stress we used to be able to handle. So for, for body, for me, it's exercising and then getting out and just doing some activities in nature. Like I instantly feel grounded and feel better when I do it. For my mind, it's writing. Writing and journaling, just free writing the stuff in my head. You know, it calms me down. It gives me clarity. I get amazing insights and it just frees my mind. And then doing my, my to-do lists, simplest thing. But when I do my plan for the week and I have a plan for every day, the world just works better. And then for spirit, it's going out in very high horsepowered machines and going very fast, making a lot of noise and having fun. So I love to race cars. I've done a bit of playing around with motorcycles. I love going out boating in the lake, dirt bikes in the, in the mountains. I haven't done that as much recently, but I used to race go-karts with my son. Like basically getting out on a racetrack and ripping it up, man, the world is a great place again. And, and also for spirit, uh, traveling and just doing some crazy adventures with friends and family. But it's, there are key components of my plan. If I want to sustain my best energy and sharpness and not have you know, the challenges I put myself into get the best of me. Mm-hmm. And so what do you, when you're coaching clients to identify their resilience rituals, I mean, that's what yours are, but what are some of those others that, that people should be thinking about or, or thinking differently about as, as their resilience rituals? This is why we have the workbook to go with the book because we have people go back and reflect on them. See, the answers are almost always within. The only one that the answers aren't within is around the mind because people don't realize they need to take care of their mind for most until they get into their thirties. It seems to be uh, maybe forties. So that one we have to guide a bit, but around the body and spirit, we have people do reflection exercises. We have people reflect about when they felt the strongest and absolutely at the best, what were they doing? So we have them do a whole bunch of reflection. But look, one guy that I worked with, one of A++ performer, he has going to the gym, meditating, and having brunch with his wife on the weekend are his three biggest ones. Because when he has brunch with his wife, he gets you know, regrounded and, and settled down. Other people, it's going for a walk, gardening, painting, singing, dancing, playing whatever sport they like to play, a sipping a whiskey or a scotch, People sitting in their rituals around sitting on their patio and drinking wine, swimming, golfing, bird watching, 
bird shooting, going to the beach, riding bicycles, playing with the animals, going to an animal shelter, time with their kids or their grandkids, watching movies. It's endless dancing, learning to dance. It's about what works for the person, but that's around the spirit. And there's also things around people's faith and religion, and they want to do, you know, one of my clients reads his religious text for an hour every day. It's all over the map. It's, it's a personal recipe. It's like, it's like grandma's recipe for that amazing dish that she hands down to generations. You know, it's your own recipe that's a great view, and it might inspire others, but, but we all have our own version. And it has a lot to do with testing different things. And the most important thing is know those four, five, six things, and don't freaking stop doing them. Don't give them up for anything and protect and block out that time. And that's your advice is just do it no matter what. And you're looking out for it when people start missing it because. Yes. Well, because I know bad things will happen. It's basically, you got to put yourself first. You have to be respectfully selfish to be sustainably generous. You have to take very good care of yourself so you can be more generous to each other. There's a lot of bad advice in our world about being a selfless leader. It sounds really sweet. It makes you sound like a nice person. If you had a massive company, you would want all of your employees to think that. So they would self-sacrifice for the greater good of the company. But that's actually not good for them. They got to take care of themselves. Now, if you don't care about your people, you would preach that, right? Just be a selfless, take care of everyone else. But if you really care about people, they have to take care of themselves. Otherwise, they will destroy themselves. You got you to keep enough of your best energy for you so you can stay strong and inspired and do great things in the world. It's like if I, if I had $1,000 or 1,000 euros and I gave you 999.99 and I kept one cent, you know, how am I going to do the things I need to do in the world? How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to invest in myself? It's not that I shouldn't be generous, but if I give everything to you and I have no other way of, of rebuilding that, I can't be generous. I can't even take care of myself to be there to make more money to give to you. And people get caught up in this selfless thing and it sounds sweet. It's just horrible advice. It's that you can only give away a surplus, can't you? Yes. And you have to make a surplus to give away a surplus. We make it. We drive and lead the machines. So it's important to be generous. I love being generous. But when you are over generous with your own energy, which is the key resource you have, your own best energy. And if you give away too much of that, it's like farmers selling off part of the farmland every year to pay the bills. Sooner or later, you're standing on a postage stamp and there's no way you could ever make any money and no way you could create anything good in the world because you have nothing left. Yeah. What are other, some of the other sort of counterintuitive or lessons you've learned? Another one of the, the chapters is invest in your sweet spots. It's a counterintuitive for some. If, they're, if, if they've done a fair amount of reading, it's not as counterintuitive. But it's to figure out the part of your work that you love doing or your part of your business you love doing and put almost all your energy there and then delegate and find ways not to do the other stuff you don't like. You know, people, there's a lot of punishment people have in business trying to do things they're not good at or they don't like, and it doesn't really make any sense. So finding ways to only do the best work or the fun work or the stuff that works for you is, is absolutely key both for us and for people on our team, because, when you leverage people's strengths, they generally have more energy because they're doing energizing work uh, and they're a lot happier. So for some, that is a counterintuitive. And for others, it's, it's just normal. 
And then the other one is to make yourself useless. It's chapter 14, I believe. And it's, it's to build a team so strong, there's not much you need to do. And for a lot of people, they want to be needed. They want their people to need them. And it's a big limitation in leaders as they grow. If you need to be needed, that means you're going to be in the center of everything. And that means you can't grow and scale a team because they're too dependent on you. You need a team that actually doesn't need you and essentially put yourself out of a job. Then you can focus on higher value things. Now that's a lot of work. And we do a ton of work on that with our CEOs and leaders, but it's something that for a lot of people, they have a little bit too much conventional thinking. And we have, we have a standard we aim for in many of our companies is to get 90% of the leaders in the company to be what we would call an A player. That's nine zero percent. We've had two of our clients achieve 91, interestingly. I don't know why they were both 91, but they were. But is to build insanely strong teams. And most people, most companies would run about 25-ish percent A players or high-performing people. And I'm like, well, if we're going to do this, why well, might as well build an amazing team, not an average team. So that, that pushes people pretty hard, but it's what I've seen the best companies do. Uh, what's your definition there of A player? A player is somebody who fits the core values, is a natural fit in the culture, and consistently delivers great results. They, they deliver as expected, like a Swiss watch, predictable as heck, almost always deliver. And as a result, they don't take a lot of management. They generally do the work of two or three people, and they're just an absolute delight to work with. And why do you find people have only got 25% or less when you start working with them? Why, why is that? It's a mindset. It's like if we look at a professional sports team, the way they look at talent, if you're not performing today, you're not on the field or the court or the ice. And at the best teams, they have a high filter for talent. And in business, for some reason, we don't. And there's a lot of the traditional HR theory and learning of bell curves and you know, having people in different quadrants. But the bar is, is low basically. The way I describe it in Canada, we play hockey. Hockey is our, our major sport. And we have the National Hockey League, which is the professional league that you watch on TV. And then we have the league where a bunch of guys and gals will go down to the local recreation center and play for fun on a, on a Thursday night. And we call that beer league. It's like you might have a beer before you play, you play, and then you might have a beer or two afterwards. And then there's the professional league. So the challenge is people have professional league aspirations but they're using beer league strategies. And it's not bad, it just doesn't work. Because if you're picking whoever is able to show up that night and whoever wants to play, that's fun. But you're not gonna win the national championship. And when you have aspirations to win the national championship, you have to think dramatically differently. So it's a mindset. And we and the companies we work with work on changing that mindset. Are there some tools that you use to help people? Because often I find clients when they're, when they're in that position, actually there's something that underlies that. It's not that they don't necessarily want to have a business full of plodders or average people, but they, they're fearful about their recruitment process. And they're attached to people that they know and like. It's not a bad thing. It's just, as you say, it's a different mindset. It makes them amazing human beings. Like I am loyal to people by nature. That is my nature. And I've had to learn this. And I personally have had to grow a lot on this. I have become loyal to performance. 
And that is not my nature. And most of my clients, it is not their nature. So we'll give people 17 tries sometimes and try and help them and do our best, which we should. But yeah, it doesn't work. So sorry, the question you asked was... Well, so I've, I suppose I've got, that, I've got, as you were talking there, I've got two things really. One is when you realize somebody's not performing in a role, what are the stages that you should go through before finally exiting if, that's, if that is the only way out? What, what can people do to take take people through and I'll come back to the other question. The first thing, you know, and part of what we do, we do what we call a quarterly talent review based on the book from Brad Smart, Top Grading, which almost all of my clients use. There's two things. We use Scaling Up, which is a book that I had a, a major role in writing. And Top Grading is the two books that everyone must use for the business. And then your oxygen mask for the individual leaders in their own personal growth. And so top grading is phenomenal. Part of it is a talent review where, you know, if your people are a great asset, you do a quarterly portfolio review and then you try and tweak the assets. So in that case, it forces us to give feedback to our people every quarter of where they're doing well and how they can grow and get better. So number one is letting them know because a lot of times it's a secret to them. They don't know these issues exist with them or they haven't been told. That is a big piece. And then we go back to the basics of the one minute manager and that's having goals. And it's basically, how are they doing on achieving their goals at the end of the day? And if their goals are clear and they're achieving them all, we, then we shouldn't have an issue. So we go back, re-clarify goals, re-clarify they have the right resources and try and reset that way to start with. And after a while, if you're still not sure and you're, you're uncomfortable, um, there's a couple questions. Brad Smart in top grading will ask, would you enthusiastically hire this person again? right? Enthusiastically. We do some private sessions with Jim Collins and we've taken a whole group of CEOs to spend two days with Jim in his laboratory in Boulder, which is a, a mind blowing experience. The guy's, a, he's an amazing man. I just had a conversation with Brad Sparta a couple of weeks ago. He is spectacular on the people assessment, like nobody in the world. And Jim Collins in terms of scaling a great company, like no one in the world. But Jim Collins has seven questions. He calls the demarcation line. So how do you decide if you're going to develop the person or if you replace them? And if you, have, if you replace them, he reminds us that, you know, we are part of the reason that they're in a company they shouldn't be in. We made a mistake and we need to remember that and we need to treat them gracefully and allow them to maintain their dignity if we have to replace them. But on the question to develop or replace, he has seven questions. The number one is, are you losing any good people because of them? You know, bad managers will cause good people to leave. I don't want to have these in exact order, but number two, is it a values problem, a will problem, or a skill problem? Secondly, has your confidence index in them gone up or gone down? Is it a window problem or a mirror problem? Is it a window like they look out the window and always blame things out the window? Or mirror, are they a person that takes responsibility and learns? Is it a job or a responsibility? Is it a job they just punch the clock and do the minimum or a responsibility they feel a need to accomplish and deliver what they've committed to? I think there's another, is it a bus problem or a seat problem? Are they on the wrong bus or in the wrong company or are they sitting in the wrong seat in the company? And then finally, how would you feel if they came into your office and quit? And if the answer is relieved, then you need to do your damn job and help the person find a new home. If it's relieved, it means you're waiting for them to do your job. And that's obviously not right. Those questions, when you go through Brad's 
know, would you enthusiastically rehire? And then gym seven, you get great clarity on where you stand. And often it's to give them another shot for another quarter and see if that confidence index goes up or down. Yeah. And I think also narrow the role. You know, if they're in the right company, the values are right, then, you know, maybe the job's just too big. The seat thing. Uh, but also g- give them some bloody feedback. Tell them how you feel. We actually, in our firm, have developed a very thorough process for 360 feedback. Well, we will go into someone that's struggling. We do it for high performers and people that are, you know, on the edge. We'll go and do a 360. We combine it with a couple of different personality profile type assessments. And then we find a way to give that feedback in a, in a very powerful triad with their manager and then turn it into a six-month coaching program to help them work on those specific things. And a lot of people are able to step up if they have crystal clear feedback, direction from their manager, and the right support. Many people can improve their behavior. Many. But most people are horrible at giving that constructive feedback in a way where it can help them grow. Yes. People find radical candor very uncomfortable to give the feedback that allows the person to, to do something with it. It is. And like in that book, you know, if you care deeply, you challenge directly in a way that has a great impact. And people are horrible at it. Horrible. <laughs> and we, uh, we help. That's why we do that. That's why we have these systems to help this because it's a very challenging thing for a lot of people to do. It's another Another chapter in, in the book on dealing with tough conversations and giving people a template to use that helps to do it because yeah, people get stuck on it lots. I often think about it when I'm talking to people and I say, look, if you were in, if you're in the coffee shop in the morning, who is it you don't want to come in behind you in the queue, right? And that's probably the person that you should be speaking to at nine o'clock this morning, right? That's if you're avoiding them, there's a conversation you're not having, and it's. Uh, and you could see people sit there and you could see them in the room reflecting, thinking, yeah, there's that person I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, that, you know what? That's a very good point. And we have actually one of the chapters is called Dealing with Tough Conversations or Tackle Tough Conversations. Is that we give people parameters. You need to make sure you have those within 48 hours. Sometimes immediately you're too hot or frustrated. But if you don't do it in 48 hours, you ain't ever going to do it. You're going to wait till the next infraction comes up. And we, what you got to do is to clean your soul and like keep your spirit clean. But two, they need to know. It's not fair to them if you don't tell them. Yeah. And then you were talking about Brad Smart and top grading, uh, which is just helping people get better. I think the stats I saw in the UK were at six months, only one in four people that had been newly hired by a company were meeting the expectations of the organization. And then they didn't get rid of those three people who weren't. And so most organizations are just shocking at hiring. I mean, it is worse than chance. They would be better off just going through a pile of CVs and tossing a coin. What do you take your clients through with the uh, top grading and Brad Smart? How do you get them to be world-class at hiring? Well, we actually do. I found an expert in top grading, Michelle. She's down in South America. I bring her up to Vancouver once or twice a year, and we do a two-day full-on immersion program where we basically spend a day and a half role-playing and practicing. So you get CEOs and senior executives role-playing and practicing for a day and a half. It's awesome. It's a very hard skill to learn. Most of us, it's a critical thinking skill, really, and a, almost a private investigator skill. 
Uh, but most people are horrible at it by nature. The biggest challenge is most of us think we're good at hiring, but we have selective memory and um, we're not as good as we think. And I'm and me included. I, I used to think I was good before I had this tool set. You know, I won't stop until my clients use it because it's just silly not to. And one of my clients, finally, we could calculate $10 million in losses to the business because of bad hires. And he finally broke down and said, fine, we'll do it your way. <laughs> I kept keeping the, the score of the amount of money he was blowing on bad hires. And he's the kind of guy that hires people that he likes. And that's not a great strategy, right? And I'm talking likes like he meets them and they make a good impression likes, not you know digging into their competence. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Because you'd think as human beings, we're amazing at pattern matching. And so you'd think that we'd we'd spot that we're doing it badly. But I was, I was listening to something the other day by Gallup and they were talking about A players, B players and C players. And they, were, they said that the level of, as human beings, our level of self-awareness is really poor. And that actually 75% of the C players, I, well, actually in this case, I think bottom quartile, bottom 25% thought they were above average. So 75% of people in the bottom quartile thought they were above average. And they said, look, it doesn't matter whether you take men's ability to think about our ability to drive or managers' ability to interview. The best ones thought they were okay and the worst ones thought they were better than average. And it's just, it's staggering. It is. And that's why with top rating, Brad says, hey, why don't we just keep score? Let's see who's actually good at hiring. Let's measure. So you and I in an organization over a period of years build up a track record of how good we are at making hires and we find out kevin has a 47 percent chance and you have a 90 well kevin's not allowed to hire anymore because <laughs> kevin's wasting company money you're right I, and i don't know why everybody feels as though everybody should be good at it you know i can't code but i can sell so get me to sell don't make me write code if you're the guy who can do the hiring you just hire all the people if it's what you're good at get people to play to their strengths exactly but there's a lot of ego and pride in hiring though, right? It gives you a lot of power and it's a, and sometimes people in HR aren't great at hiring. Well, they've learned all the formal traditional stuff and I feel bad for them sometimes, but they're just not good. They've learned the wrong things. And that's why top grading is just a, a must do. I mean, I'm just, I'm the biggest fan of there. Just, and every single client of mine uses it, whether they want to or not. Sooner or later they want to. <laughs> I just get sick of seeing all the people problems. Yeah. So what else is, what else is in the, uh, what else, what other things have you got that are front of mind there when you're thinking about coaching and clients that you could share? Learning like your life depends on it. Chapter eight. And we have breaking down learning into two things, personal fascinations, things that you're just curious about to kind of fuel your spirit and your curiosity about the world. And then strategic learning things you need to learn to be more effective in something in your business or your life. I think it's interesting when you spoke there about the beer league versus the national league. Quite often I ask people if they're any better at playing golf. And I, I don't know what, lots of people then say they're no better than they were 10 years ago. What they do is they play golf. They're not deliberately practicing. And what you're talking there about is you're talking about deliberate practice. Yes, absolutely. And getting better. It's like me and racing cars, like at the a track I'm a member of, you know, we have, three of the top racers in the Porsche cup car series in North America. Actually, one of them is in a different series now, but three of the young guys in early twenties are three of the top drivers in all of North America and they're at our track. 
So I've hired different ones of them to help me to learn how to drive better. I've been racing cars for 20 years, but I still find whoever the heck the best is and want to learn from them to get better because that deliberate practice makes you better. Otherwise you're showing up and, and you're repeating the same good things and the same mistakes. Do you have a sense of what the volume is, minimum volume from the, the people that you work with? You know, are they, should they be reading a book a week, a book a month, five books a year, watching what's there? Do you have a... Yeah, like, you know, Brad Smart and Top Green did a study that the top C-suite leaders read about 24 books a year, 24. I usually do 24 to 30 in that range, 20, 20 to 30, um, depending on what's going on. I would say about a book a month. There's a lot you need to learn to be effective at what you do. And if I look at the most successful leaders I work with, and that's those that are approaching a billion dollars in revenue or have already well exceeded it, they are some of the most voracious readers ever. They're some of the busiest people you'll meet, but they always have time to learn and grow. And I remember uh, Mark Cuban. Yeah, Mark Cuban, who's an American entrepreneur who sold broadcast.com for like $1.2 billion and owns the Dallas Mavericks sports team. Awesome guy. We got to speak to him at an event we were at and you know, he talked about how he made a deal with his wife when he first got married that he was going to read three hours a day. That was part of his deal. And he, he said early on in his career, what he realized is he's a small player going against big players. And the only way he could win is to be smarter. And the only way to be smarter was to read from other really smart people and learn. So I don't like reading by nature. I can be very honest. I do not enjoy reading. It is not a pleasurable activity for me, except for maybe if I'm on a holiday I'm bored. But I do it because I want to get better. And I also listen to audiobooks because it's easier for me. It's just part of my deliberate practices you're talking about. It's, it's a way of getting better. But I aim for a book a month. At minimum, all the leaders in your company should be reading at least a book a quarter. But for the senior leaders, a book a month is a decent track to be on. On that, segueing from that to a question I ask all the people I manage to interview other is there one book, two books, three books? Maybe we've talked, we've mentioned a couple of books along the way already. Are there, are there other books that you think people should? Maybe it's books not from a coaching perspective. Maybe it's books that have influenced you along the way. Yeah, I've got a list of forty-two in the back. <laughs> maybe we pull a couple out. What should people go and read? All of the Jim Collins books. He has done the best research on building great companies and enduring companies. I use it with every company. It's you know woven deeply into scaling up and other great methodologies. So all the Jim Collins books, including his most recent book about the flywheel, which is insanely powerful. All five Collins books. His first book, Beyond Entrepreneurship, you know, most people don't know about. You might want to read that as well. But the later ones for sure. Multipliers by Liz Weissman on being a more effective leader. It's an awesome, awesome book. The Art of War by Sun Tzu. There's a lot of stuff around strategy, especially for aggressive personality styles that's counterintuitive and art of war or Kaihan Krippendorf's adaptation of it. Um, Hide a dagger behind a smile is a more modern adaptation of it. Islands of profit in a sea of red ink to understand where you make money and lose money and how to make your business more profitable. That'll do. I can see you just keep going, wouldn't you? You just keep going. All right, brilliant. Um, and then there's one other question I always, uh, I always ask. So if you could go back in time, what is it that you know now that you think, oh, I just wish I'd known that then? Not with a sense of regret, but just a almost sense of sort of amusement. What damage would you have done? What problem would you have averted? What 
what difference would you have made? I live in Vancouver. I would have bought way more real estate way earlier. <laughs> Our market has gone through the roof. It's one of the most expensive places in the world to live now. And it didn't used to be that way. So if I go back in time, that I would have done for sure. I'm not a look back person at all, interestingly. <laughs> I probably, you know what it is? I would have built a team around me earlier on. I've got a great team of coaches now. And I would have built them around me earlier in my career. That I would have done. Look at the boutique firm now. I would have built the key people around the boutique firm earlier on. Okay. Kevin, thank you very much indeed. Enjoy this afternoon's executive development program that you're running. Yeah, thank you very much. Been a Thanks pleasure. for making the time today. I love it. I always love sharing this great stuff with other people. And if people want to reach out, just you know, on our website, we've got lots of videos and blog. Everything we can share, we share to try and help people. So, Kevin, that's brilliant. Thanks very much. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>